This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to episode 336 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome back onto the podcast Joel Salatin. Now, Joel is a world-renowned holistic farmer who has appeared on multiple documentaries, including Forks Over Knives and Food Inc., and was also my guest on episode four. So if you haven't heard that, I highly recommend listening to that. But in the wake of this pandemic, I really want to pull out some of the basal health practices that we can glean from clean farming, from understanding what we're eating and the quality of what we're eating, so that we can then build resilience within the communities around the world. So this was another amazing interview with Joel. I'm so, so glad he was able to come back on. Before we get to that interview, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I really do love reading the feedback and then leave a rating. The five-star ratings truly do make us more and more visible for people looking for a project like this. And then this is a free library for you, the audience, whether it's individually, whether it's in a fire department, a police department, a, a business, use these incredible episodes for your own growth. And all I ask in return is that you help share these amazing men and women's stories so that we can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. I truly, truly believe that there are some life-changing stories on here. So with that being said, I introduce to you Joel Salatin. Enjoy.
Joel, firstly, I want to say thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. You were one of my very first guests, episode four, um, which was almost four years ago now. So here we are sitting in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> so welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's a delight and an honor to be with you, James. Brilliant. Well, we I would love to jump straight into that topic. I heard you on Joe Rogan a few weeks ago and um, you know, the the things you talked about resonated deeply with me and there's some other things I'd love to expand on that that you guys didn't have time to address. Um, but to right off the bat, so tell me from your perspective as a holistic farmer, um, what have been your observations with the last few months? Well, the, the main observation is that we, as, as, a, as a culture, um, we have refused to what, take, you know, take responsibility, take personal responsibility for A, getting healthy, and B, um, the, you know, the, the, uh, the level of sickness that we've had in our country. I mean, you know, every country wants to, you know, have the best gymnast or the fastest 100-yard dash runner. <laughs> you know, there, there are places where you want to lead the world, but there are places where you don't want to lead the world. And, and the fact that the U.S. leads the world in, in non-infectious morbidity, so that's, you know, cancer, diabetes, um, obesity, things like that that, that, that take life, heart, heart disease, um, the fact that we lead the world, uh, we're number one in the world in those uh, per capita, uh, you know, should should give us pause. Um, for all our cleverness, we're you know we're we're um, we're not in a good place. And and I would suggest that perhaps that's one reason why we're um, suffering more than other countries. It's not it's not because of you know face masks and lockdowns and and uh, uh, you know other things. It's it's to me, it's consistent with the fact that we lead the world in these non-infectious, uh, what we call, you know, uh, Western, you know, Western uh, lifestyle problems. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I would love to see somebody push um, Anthony Fauci aside one time and take the microphone and say, "Okay, America, let's spend one week working on our immune system." <laughs> we. we we, we can do that a lot faster than uh, than, than a vaccine, and uh, we can do that right now, and it doesn't really cost us anything. So, so what would be a recipe for, you know, immune building? So, first of all, for a week, you know, we're not we're not going to drink any uh, uh, Coke, Pepsi, Dr Pepper, you know, uh, sugary uh, drinks. We're we're not going to eat junk food. We're not going to go to McDonald's. Uh, you know, we're going to actually you know cook and eat unprocessed foods. And we're going to sleep eight and a half hours, and we're going to drink three quarts of uh, of, of water uh, to get rehydrated. Almost every American is dehydrated, which is which is a real health issue. And uh, and we're going to spend one hour a day outside. I mean, we're in the summer. There's never a better time to spend an hour a day outside, um, getting some vitamin D, some exercise. You know, throw ball with the dog, the kids, the whatever. Uh, uh, grandma, I don't care, but but get out and get get some activity, some exercise, throw the ball, and uh, and then uh, maybe it would be good to to forgive everybody that you hate, um, because because hatred and vengeance drop cortisol levels and and play havoc with our immune system. So let's uh, let's live and let live and get rid of that and. Uh, 
and you know, I mean, those are what, like six things I just mentioned. But I mean, if we really devoted ourselves to that for one week, um, you know, and and, and uh, another one might be um, instead turn off the uh, the depressing news for at least one hour a day and watch something hilarious like Red Skelton or Laurel and Hardy or you know and just laugh laugh strong and hard for an hour a day you know that that, that might be good too yeah well i mean that's what i've seen from the beginning i want to explore obviously the the whole uh, immune building immunity side in depth in a minute but for what we've got now for where people are um you know in their health when this first started to me Two things. Firstly, as a, as a firefighter paramedic for 14 years, when they started touting the numbers and showing images from ERs, you know, I'm like, well, that's what happens every day in America. In, in the inner city, our ERs are swamped usually, you know, so there's a lot of false narrative. But the only way that you're going to build resilience is like you said, you know, in, in the very short term, aside from the nutritional and exercise element is the state of mind. And it was the complete opposite where they basically scared the shit out of everyone thus you know further lowering the immunity of the population yes yes um and the whole the whole uh, fixation i i guess the the right word is fixation when you when you are fixated on on fear um yes you you don't function your your body your whole physical um you know, system. When you're fixated on fear, your body doesn't function very well, and and um, so so when when we when we quarantine, I mean, never never in history have healthy people been quarantined. Here we are. You know, normally you quarantine sick people, or you know, um, that, that's how you stop these things. So instead of quarantining sick people, you know, we're quarantining healthy people. And upsetting everyone's life, disappointing people, creating incredible economic hardship on, on many people, and um, and all of this adds to this to this fear fixation, this this paranoid hysteria uh, fixation that that becomes an all-consuming thing uh, in our psyche, and and then of course it it, it uh, permeates then into our physical. Uh, health and it's uh, it's very unfortunate. I mean, uh, you know, we it, it's it's good to be aware of things, but uh, to be completely fixated on fear is is not a healthy cultural position to be in. No, and it seems like the from what I'm seeing, we're being sold. Almost the idea that there should be no death or disease at all. So that's like the baseline for them versus, you know, the death or disease that we, that we see. And if there was a ticker tape in the corner, you know, a number counting the narrowing of arteries, that thing would, would blow, you know, the COVID numbers out the war. And that's what's so disappointing is I've never seen anyone do a mandatory non-evacuation where you can't go home you have to stay outside and run and play and exercise and pick fruit and eat it and you know we lose millions and millions and millions of people to obesity we lose millions to to cancer from cigarettes and I I, have, I don't see the same push for any of these these uh conditions that are killing you know numerous times yeah. more people than COVID 
Yes, well, yesterday our, our Virginia news here, uh, the top story was uh, Virginia. You know, we, we lost two, we, uh, two people died yesterday from COVID in Virginia. And um, this, was, this was the top statewide news story. Two people died. Well, how many people died of a heart attack or suicide or, goodness, a, a car wreck? Um, you know, to, to, to make that uh, headline news, it's just, it's just um, hysteria. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100% uh, that there are, it, it, you know, is, is this a thing? Yes, it is a thing. But it is certainly, it doesn't deserve the level of, of fear that it's, that it's, um, it's created. Uh, like you say, you know, narrowing of arteries, uh, you know, the different things, different diseases and things, um, you know, we're, we're still, we're still far behind, uh, many things. And, and the, the refusal of the data points to indicate who is getting this. I mean, it is so uh, primarily toward people with comorbidities, but the data points just have to give, you know, report the numbers because if you if you say that, you know, if you point out that, you know, 80% of the people are over 80 years old, uh, then suddenly you're, you're expressing ageism and that sort of thing. And, and so, so, you know, isn't it amazing that out of this, out of this whole period of fear, quarantining, uh, economic and emotional stress, here we come in with the George Floyd thing. We come in with the with the uh, urban violence thing, and the looting and uh, the racism, and you know cities are burning, and and um, and and we we just have we have pent up. I, I'm I'm convinced that much of this. Uh, you know, a violence we're seeing in our cities right now is partly just, uh, whatever, pent up. It's, it's pent up expression of four months of being couch potatoes. And, you know, we're not, we're not built to be, uh, hermit couch potatoes. No, I mean, I think it's, it's an interesting perspective, even for the way we do prisons in a lot of the Western world, you know, locking people away for hours and hours and hours. This has a, been a great social experiment that that is not good for rehabilitation because it's it's turned some very seemingly normal people into, you know, some some pretty crazy behaviors that you see on the news. But um, what I want to get to is is the the preventative side, because that's not what's being spoken about. And then I want to also get to the, you know, the creation of some of these diseases through, you know, market and farming practices. But when this first kicked off, I made a video about how I was worried about first responders, because the shifts that they work, the long, long work weeks, they are, you know, the ones that people are leaning on, they're probably some of the, the less resilient people. And we've seen many, many police officers and firefighters die. I've got two friends that were both in in ICU. Um, but thankfully, they're both out now, but they, they had multiple things, multiple areas that would have compromised, compromised their immune system, which is why they had such a severe reaction. So what are we doing wrong as a nation that's creating one of the wealthiest countries on the planet, uh, you know, a health, ill health epidemic? Well, I think this has to go clear back to the soil. Uh, that we, as a, as a culture, I mean, we developed 
genetically modified organisms. We developed uh, uh, DDT, uh, you know, uh, glyphosate. Um, goodness, we developed a food pyramid in 1979. The USDA did uh, that that put you know Cheerios and Fruit Loops on the as the foundational you know on the foundational level of the food pyramid. Uh, as a nation, we were the first in the world to um, to say it was wrong to eat uh, Crisco. Uh, I'm sorry, to eat uh, lard and butter, and told everybody to go to hydrogenated vegetable oil. Remember all the margarine uh, margarine ads, and and so my point there is that we have we have led the world in experimenting to the fringes. Of, 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 of fake and adulterated um, fertilizer, soil development, plant development, and foods. We, other cultures, I mean, you don't have to travel very much, but if you travel around the world, you, you know, uh, you will find that cultures really define themselves with a food culture, an architecture culture, a religion culture. Uh, I mean, Prince Prince Charles says that, that every culture is defined by three things: food, architecture, and religion. And and when I go around the world and ask somebody in Germany or Sweden or or you know Spain and say, when I say America food culture, what do you think of? I've never found anybody that said anything except McDonald's. And and that. That represents the, you know, the most, uh, you know, a factory farmed industrial chemical oriented food that is, that, uh, uh, that leads the world in numbers, in number of people who, who eat that kind of food as a, as a percentage of per capita consumption. And number two, it came here first, and now, of course, we're trying to export this. We're exporting Coca-Cola, exporting McDonald's, you know, all over the world, and um, and and every culture, every country where these are exported. Guess what? We see diabetes, we see obesity, and we see heart disease. You know, we see these things developing. So, you know, it's not rocket scientists to appreciate that in our that in our our luxury uh, and in our convenience oriented and 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 I would just say non non cultural food tradition. I mean, uh, there's a fascinating uh, thread of thought that um, that in for example in Europe, the phrase is not "Well, did you get enough to eat?" It is it is rather "Well, how did it taste?" Um, and and in, in Europe actually. There's a culture of of uh, of eating not very much at a meal because it was in royalty when when you uh, when you have royalty and peasants uh, you have a very you know demarcated culture uh, it was a sign of refinement and and uh, uh, wealth that I didn't have to gorge on food because I knew there was another meal coming. In in the in America as we started, and I'm I'm going back here, but but you know, listen, cultural DNA goes deep, and in America where we came to this frontier, and you didn't know if you're going to get a next meal, and and so we developed a food culture of getting enough. Of, you know, did we 
did we get enough to survive? Read the Lewis and Clark expedition. I mean, these guys, these guys literally went, you know, uh, 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 day to day wondering if they were going to get something to eat. There, there were no, you know, there were no big fat, uh, you know, Dunkin' Donuts guys, uh, on the, on the Lewis and Clark expedition. They were lean and mean and they, they literally went from, you know, from, uh, musket shot to musket shot with deer or bear or, or whatever they could get. And so, and so our American food tradition was, was very, very different. We developed a very, very food, uh, different tradition. Uh, it was not about quality. It was not about texture or taste or, 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 or ter- terroir, you know, uh, like in France. Uh, there was nothing like that. It was just, you know, did you get enough to, to go another day? And, uh, and th- this was even a Native American thing. I mean, one of the reasons the Native Americans were so prone to alcohol uh, problems was because they they ate sporadically. You know, when the bison were around and they could get enough to eat, um, you know, they, they would eat up to 10 pounds of bison in a day and just sit around and gorge for a week because it might be, you know, a couple of weeks till they got another really good meal. And uh, and so th- this was this was also a Native American thing as well. And so um you know the the europeans as they came here and interacted with the native americans and, and saw the um uh the 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 lack of of security um you know our our deep deep dna in this in our area is um is is a food of did you get enough did you fill up of of food Feasting, or, or I, I should even say, um, indulgence and um, overeating, as opposed to uh, you know the, the more European uh, concept. And so you know that that's deep in our DNA. And uh, and so as we have come in our modern culture to where we were able to grow plenty and we were able to grow it cheaply. Um, we didn't have a food tradition, if you will, a, a quality type food tradition like in Europe. Uh, we developed a more kind of food as a as a necessity. It's a sideline, but the the real work is building railroads and you know and 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 uh, doing important work. And food's kind of a a sideline to the really important stuff in life, and uh, and that's kind of our culture. And so so the, the result is. That we don't um, we don't put attention on food like other cultures do. Now you mentioned about you know the the railroads and everything. So the the one thing that I see over and over again, you can talk about the industrialization. Excuse me, the industrialization of food, the mega farms, and even things like racism. You know, starting with with slavery, is the common denominator is a few people wanting to get incredibly wealthy at the expense of the masses. So. What what seeing as we're on this kind of history timeline, kind of walk us through how we went from more local farms to the industrialization, and then what impact that had back in the you know the middle of last century. Sure, sure. So, um, I, I think I think all of us can bear blame. I mean, I, I'm not a I'm not a victim kind of person. Uh, I, I can I can repent. I've got plenty enough stuff to repent about as well as anybody else and so i think a simplistic answer to that 
is is uh, is not is not helpful. We need to understand that all of us, as a culture, we were complicit in this move from uh, from from craft and artisan work and, and small farms to these industrial mega farms, monocropping, mono mono things. And again, part of this was due to uh, uh, food security and and um, government thinking. Well, we can you know we can move this along. We can incentivize so that we're never short of food at all. And so we, early in the you know in the 20th century, uh, we started the food programs. We started subsidies. Uh, of course, you know Abraham Lincoln started the USDA, um, which I'm sure he thought would be helpful, but it turned out that it's that the fraternity between the government and the um, and the industry was a bit of an unholy alliance and has created amalgamation, centralization, and of course everything was about efficiency. Can we be efficient? And so as our as our country um, industrialized, we saw food as an industrial thing as well. And America, more again, more than any other culture, I think. Bought into this idea that life is mechanical, uh, a kind of a mechanical view toward life, and um, rather than rather than life being biological, and uh, you know, are there some you know mechanical elements? Well, yeah, you know, you've got leverage in your limbs and and joints and things like that. There are certainly mechanical elements, but um, but the idea of of, bio, of biology, where it can heal, uh, where it can be wounded and heal, that's very non-mechanical. You know, if your if your uh, 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 front wheel bearing goes out and starts to thump, uh, you don't stop the truck and wait for it to heal, or go around and ask for it to forgive you for not lubricating it. Uh, nothing, nothing repairs it except replacing the, the bearing. But fortunately, living things, including our own psychology, we can we can say a, a, a you know an unkind word to somebody and then apologize, and that wound can heal, and uh, and physically it can heal. We we get a scrape, we get a splinter, we get a cut, and it can heal. That that's very different uh, biologically than um, you know than mechanically, but we we um, you know develop these. Uh, chemical fertilizers, the pesticides, the herbicides. Of course, World War II, we had these stockpiles of uh, anhydrous ammonia. And frankly, farmers were tired of shoveling poop, uh, very tired of shoveling poop. We'd shoveled and shoveled and shoveled and shoveled and shoveled. And, uh, boy, if you present a farmer, you want to shovel poop all day, or would you rather just put on this little bag of, of uh, 5-10-10 and be done with it, any almost any farmer's gonna grab that bag of five ten ten. So be gentle on great grandpa, you know, in, in, in post World War Two when he reached for that bag of chemical fertilizer when he was worn out and tired of shoveling and shoveling. Well, what happened was that we um, that through the 1950s and early 1960s, as mechanization and equipment um, developed on farms. Uh, um, the other side was not standing still either. The the infrastructure necessary to run a carbon-based, organic matter-based uh, fertility farm fertility program 
was also developing. I mean, we're talking about water pipe, front-end loaders, PTO shafts, ground-driven manure spreaders, chippers and shredders, and, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, the infrastructure to run a, a credible, viable, alternative, uh, you know, carbon-based, non-chemical approach was well in place by the mid-60s and late-60s. But by that time, the chemical approach had completely um, come to dominate our universities, our government institutions, and even the food system. So, you know, you have that threat on the farm. Meanwhile, you have you have post-World War II uh, uh, tax policy. Taxes are going up. And so we've got to have, we got to take, uh, we have two income earners instead of one income earner. Took the woman out of the house. I'm being very sexist, but, but, but this is, this is fact. This is the way it was. Took the women out of the house. Well, now they can't cook anymore. So now we got to have TV dinners. Those came in in the, you know, in, in the late fifties. You also had the notion in the fifties that, that, uh, breastfeeding babies was somehow Neanderthal and barbaric. And if you wanted to really be, you know, hip, and, uh, and, and modern, uh, you used Infamil and Similac, and we raised a generation of asthmatics on, uh, artificial milk. Now we know, of course, uh, that breast milk is absolutely the best. We have, you know, the whole, orth- that whole orthodox narrative has inverted back to, you know, ancient heritage wisdom of, uh, not only is it healthy for the baby, but in post-life we know that there's a direct link between breast cancer and breastfeeding, and if, 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 uh, breastfeeding has occurred, there's a lot less breast cancer later on in life. All those things, um, um, develop. So our, our pendulum, uh, really, really swung into this industrial paradigm of life. This, this kind of artificial, sterile, uh, mechanical life view. And, um, and as a result, the only the only uh, uh, measure is pounds and efficiency. And when you just measure in pounds and efficiency uh, without regard to quality, without regard to, um, uh, you know, destruction of something on the way to that, like, you know, every, every bushel of soil loses two bushels of, I mean, every bushel of corn loses two bushels of soil, uh, you know, a dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, those externalized costs on the way to efficiency today, we basically sold the future for today's prosperity. And the result of that has been a new lexicon that's developed in our culture. I mean, those of us over 60 years old, we, we, as children, we never heard terms like food allergy. You know, if you wanted a potluck or a, or a birthday party, moms didn't have to call each other and say, you know, what kind of food allergies am I dealing with? Uh, you, you just, you just got together and shared food, you know? Uh, uh E. coli, salmonella, campylobacter, listeria, uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, uh, high path avian influence. I mean, it, these, this is all a lexicon, food allergy. All a lexicon that's developed as a result of of cheating and taking shortcuts with um, with our ecological womb, our ecological umbilical, and uh, and more and more of us now are realizing, oh, 
Well, I guess resiliency is as important as efficiency. And we need to think about uh, how we actually have a regenerative food system that regenerates the soil, regenerates the commons, air, water, and regenerates the human uh, strength. How do we have a food and farming system that that um, that is fundamentally biological and regenerative as opposed to just mechanical, exploitive, and efficient? And those are the conversations now that this whole that that our our disruptive point in history, those are the conversations we're starting to have, and it's a very it's uh, I would just say it, it it's about time, and it's a very positive thing. It's the silver lining of the cloud of of the uncertain uh, insecure times we're dealing in, to actually to be actually uh, pushed to start having some of these conversations. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you highlighted the ownership of each one of us as well, because, you know, when you look at that path, you realize that we created it. You know, the reason why that mega supermarket made it in your town and shut down the butcher and the baker and, you know, everyone else was because we went there. So what but I think what is very empowering is if we take that lesson and, you know, get over the shame, <laughs> we can realize that the the, the absolute opposite is also uh, in effect. So if we choose to now, now we understand it, to go seek out our local farmers, you know, support the brand new butcher or, you know, uh, craft brewer or coffee shop, whatever it is, then we are going to turn that around ourselves. And that's what I've learned. And I grew up in England and then, you know, moved here about almost 20 years ago now. Whether it's a prime minister in the UK or a president here, none of those people are going to fix your problems for you. We as the nation have to band together and we can vote. And I don't think that the actual ballot slip does too much, to be honest. But I think the dollar or the pound does an incredible amount. So by us searching the right places, the small farms and all the the areas that actually are healthy, we can reverse it, but we have to do it together. Yes. The whatever physical manifestation we have right now, you know, whether it's eroding soil or nutrient deficient food or full hospitals or or, or whatever it is, uh, is simply a uh, a cumulative physical manifestation of trillions and trillions of decisions that we have made, you know, over the course of of history. Uh, we 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 have arrived where we've. We have, we have arrived where we are because we've been traveling that direction. And if we want to arrive at a different point, we need to travel a different direction. And, and so, yes, um, you're exactly right. Tomorrow's, tomorrow's context, you know, let's just, let's just go out 50 years to maybe our, you know, our grandchildren when they're our age, when, uh, uh, their context, will also be a physical manifestation of the trillions and trillions of decisions that will be made between now and then. And, um, and, and you know, that sounds simplistic, but it's, it's absolutely true. And, and so as we start making different decisions, we're going to change that trajectory. You know, on our, uh, our little farm, uh, whatever, uh, cooler bags, we have our logo on one side, and on the other side is a moniker that says "Healing the Land One Bite at a Time," and and we put that on there so that all of our customers understand that when you when you buy soil building 
water replenishing, air refreshing, uh, 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 nutrient dense food, you are you are creating a fundamentally healing context as opposed to a sickening context, and and that's a you know. That's a le- that's a legacy worth investing in, and it's a legacy worth leaving. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a very important point that a lot of people misunderstand is that America is is overfed, but we're malnourished. And I think that the the lack of education of the impact of destroying our soil having on the actual nutrients of the food that we put in our mouths is a lesson that needs to be taught. So how how do we reverse the damage that we've done to to our agricultural land and you know how can we we regenerate it to the point where we can you know create incredibly uh, nutritious foods again yeah well there are kind of two threads of thought on that question i mean one thread is well we need better you know we need better ag policy a better farm bill we need to quit um you know subsidizing and and protecting um you know, corn, soybeans, cotton, sugar, and and rice and wheat, the six commodity uh, crops that all require tillage and use by far and away the largest share of chemicals and pesticides on the planet. Um, so you know, there's there's that element, uh, just a, a you know a change of policy. But uh, but beyond but that, you know that's that that's the bogeyman after. That's the easy way to point your finger and say, okay, so I'm not responsible. Uh, somebody else has to fix this. That's always the, the temptation, isn't it? You know that, that well. I can't do anything about this. I can't change policy, so I go on my merry way. Which brings me to the second thread, and the, and the second thread is, what can we do personally? So, frankly, I'm not real optimistic about whatever governmental direction, you know, federal uh, uh, change of orthodoxy. I mean, you see stuff uh, change once in a while, but in general, the trajectory seems to be um, not toward a good place. And so that brings me back to the threat of personal responsibility. What can, what can I do? And uh, I kind of have three, you know, three areas that a person can, can uh, you know, can, can participate in today. And uh, one is, uh, you can get in your kitchen, and that's not a again that's not a sexist thing, uh, but but in our kitchens, I mean, our, we have never had so many techno glitzy gadgetized convenience uh, infrastructure in our chicken in, in our kitchens, but we've never been so lost as to how to use them, where they are. Uh, the average American spends less than fourteen minutes a day. In their kitchen, and uh, I heard a food talk lately. Of, um, actually, a professor from uh, Oxford in, in uh, England, and uh, he's, he's a food marketing guru. And he said, he said in my and he's older. He said in my generation, we always asked what's for dinner, and today's young people ask what's dinner, and, and that and and that was a really profound phrase. I thought it was great. Um, because it's true, you know, we, we, we buy little single serving packages. And, um, so kind of my, my new, uh, litmus test for, uh, people that, that are thinking about this 
uh, is, are you eating leftovers? You know, because leftovers show that you actually probably cooked something from scratch. You ate uh, as a you know, as a family, and um, and and you're not going out to eat tomorrow. You're you know for lunch you're going to have leftovers. Um, I mean, I've I've lived on leftovers all my life. I love them. You know, I mean that's there, there's nothing more convenient than eating leftovers. And so uh, so get in your kitchen. That's number one. Number two is do something yourself. I, I mean, you can get a, a, a vermicomposting, a, a, a little earthworm bed under your kitchen sink to eat your food scraps. You can grow a tomato on the on the patio on the front porch, a little herb. You know, now there's all these cool little, um, you know, urban urban gardening uh, gadgets, you know, from like PVC pipes with pockets in them that you can hang on your front porch uh, to you know, uh, uh, window boxes to, you know, postage stamp backyard uh, kinds of things, you know, uh, barrel gardens, all sorts of things. So, you know, uh, you, you can grow something yourself um, and, and just participate in the majesty, the mystery, and the, and the awesomeness of, of life. Uh, it'll, it'll teach you to be humble and realize that, you know, I'm not the center of the universe. There's something bigger going on here than, than just me. And the third thing then so we've got we got get in your kitchen number two uh grow something yourself anything and number three then is to to take your to take some a portion budget your recreational entertainment time and build some relationships with your local food shed um you know every every area now has really great authentic integrity farms that are uh you know Fertilizing with compost instead of chemicals. They are, um, you know, producing a diversified product as opposed to mono uh, crops, uh, and and they're most of them are direct marketing or they have some sort of a local brand identity. Um, meet some of these people. Go visit their farms. Uh, yeah, you know, there's and and let me tell you right now during this whole coronavirus thing. There's not a better place to go that's safer and uh, uh, more entertaining than a farm. I mean, this isn't Disney World. It's not, you know, it's not a, a theme park. It's it's not even a museum, you know. It's it's just out here in the country, uh, wiggle your fingers through some, some soil, uh, walk barefoot through the pasture, you know, um, and, and start creating some relationships and connections with your local farmer food shed so that you will have that level of connection and food security so you're not the one that's stuck in the future. The one that's stuck is the, is the one that goes to the supermarket and says, ooh, the shelves are empty, uh, but I know where my food is. It's right here at you know, Farmer John's or Farmer Jill's or whatever. And, um, and, and if you develop that, you know, your farmers will take care of you also and uh, during good times and bad and whatever. So those are three things that that anybody could do to invest in a different trajectory than the way we've been going. Well, I love that. You hit on a very, very important point as well, and something I just kind of had a, an epiphany on recently. Um, when you said leftovers, so in the, the fitness space, there has been this big kind of upsurgence of what they call meal prepping. And you basically, you know, prepare meals for several days and you can either freeze them or whatever. But basically, that's what 
we call leftovers for <laughs> for hundreds and hundreds of years. Because I mean, I grew up on a farm, and it was the same thing. They'd cook for double the size of the family, and that way, the next day you had, you know, it doesn't have to be the next day. Even a day or two later, you ate what you ate prior, and it and is no. No more convenient than leftovers. I mean, even McDonald's, you still got to go there and sit in a car in a drive-through or wait in a line. Whereas you just open your fridge and the meal that you cooked a couple of days ago is now there just to be heated up again. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And and again, when I say get in the kitchen, you know, I'm not talking about Grandma's kitchen where you know she had to get up at four o'clock to put wood in the stove to get it hot enough to fry eggs on when Papa came in for milking the cow. Uh, I, I mean, we we now have time bake, and we've got bread makers, ice cream makers, um, hot and cold running water, and and refrigerators and freezers, and uh, uh, you know microwaves and all, all the all the gadgetry that you can imagine. So it's never the 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 thing is, it's never been easier. It's never been more convenient to be in our kitchens, and so let's. Um, you know, let's utilize the technology that we have. Never has it been easier to to eat more responsibly than now, and so we need to exercise that. Absolutely. Well, another area that I really want to get your your um, perspective on is. Uh, Do you know who Jamie Oliver is? A British cook. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So Jamie did an incredible thing in the UK. I think he tried to do it here in the US as well, where he changed the, the what school food looked like in, in British schools and tried over here in the US. And to me, that is absolutely where the, you know, the first line needs to be. If we're educating our children on what food is, how it's grown, and then serving that same clean food in their cafeterias, you're going to create an entire generation of kids that you know, aren't programmed by fast food and processed food anymore. But one of the pushbacks I always hear from people, and I think it comes from, you know, a lack of education is, oh, that'll be more expensive. And and Jamie appeared to show that that was absolutely false in the the documentaries that he he was shown in doing doing that in the schools that he worked with. So from your perspective, can we feed our children in the schools for the same budget that they're given for the, the you know, the whatever it is, Cisco food that's shipped in? Uh, in from my perspective, no. Uh, it, we are going to have to invest more in food. And and um, I, I, I'd love to see some of his budgeting. I, I know there are there are major cost savings. For example, if the if the school actually cooks food instead of getting all pre-processed, uh, there can be some some pretty significant savings. Also, I know that nutrient dense food satiates faster, so you don't need to eat the volume that you do when uh, you're just eating empty empty calories or you know calories that aren't hooked up with the more uh, with depth nutrition. And so, you know, there, there are some, so I'm sure some of this is all part of that. Of course, you know, there's always the externalized costs, um, of, of, uh, of higher quality food, uh, of, I'm, I'm sorry, cheap food, externalized costs from, you know, uh, dead zones in riparian areas to the fact that, you know, half of all cases of diarrhea are from, uh, foodborne illness. And, and, and so, uh, you know, and 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 we just have all of the diseases of nutrient deficiency as well. 
uh, and I don't think we've begun to explore all of those externalized costs. But, um, you know, good food goes fast, goes farther. I mean, uh, uh, I was telling a guy yesterday, recounting a story that we got from uh, a, a chef that we started taking eggs to, and our eggs were like, you know, three times as expensive as the Cisco eggs he'd been using. Um, but he said, we actually make more money with yours uh, because in the the regular industrial eggs, there's always a couple cracked or broken in the flat because the shells are thin. Well, those have leaked over onto their partners, and you end up sticking your finger through a couple of those, trying to get them dislodged from the the, the you know the uh, the glue of the white that's leaked out into its neighbor you know egg. And then uh, if somebody wants an e- over easy or sunny side up uh, fried fried egg, then um, next thing you know, the yolk breaks because you don't have a structural integrity in the in the egg. You have to throw that one away, get another one. So he said, even though we're paying more for yours, they actually they actually go a lot farther because we never have to throw one away. There's never a broken one, and you know, and and it's uh, and of course, it's not just a broken egg or the throwaway. You then you have the labor, you have the cooking time, all of those kinds of things add up. Uh, we know, for example, that all of our meats uh, cook cook twenty to thirty percent faster than uh, than industrial meat and. We believe that it's because industrial meat is all full of adrenaline. Adrenaline tightens up muscle tissue. And, um, and, and these factory animals, they're stressed their entire life. And so all that cumulative stress comes out into the, into the, uh, into the meat, into the muscle tissue and makes it, takes it longer to cook. Ours cooks in way, way less time. Well, what's that worth? You know, in the kitchen, uh, cooking time is, is, Valuable. I mean, you've got labor, you've got energy, you've got uh, infrastructure tie-up time, and so you know when you when you start taking all of those kinds of uh, um, you know related related things around the actual meal prep procedure, from you know from human sickness to externalized to satiation to uh, wasted product to cooking time, all of those things. Uh, they actually add up to where we tell people, even though our price tag is higher, we actually have the cheapest food in the world because the price that's on the tag is everything. There's no hidden cost. There's nothing out here lurking. There's no bogeyman going to get you um, from that price. It's the real price, and it's the honest price. And so, um, so yeah, that's that's my answer. I, I, I don't think we could possibly, you know, sell eggs just straight up price competitive to, um, you know, to the to the factory eggs. Uh, but there's no there's no comparison in the eggs either. Yeah, ours actually ours actually taste good and give you uh, vibrant life. Well, exactly. I think that's it. I mean, there's obviously a, a huge nutritional advantage. I think one of the areas where Jamie was highlighting they could save money was exactly what you said they they took these these um you know people that worked in the kitchens and rather than just shoving things in an oven they taught them how to cook they used fresh vegetables they they made chicken nuggets from you know chicken breasts i don't know if they were you know the best um raised chicken but i mean again that's where you would add that 
extra layer of the budget to really make sure you maximize nutrition in, in children's health. But you imagine the knock-on effect of, of the financial side of not having sick Americans anymore. You would save money hand over fist, aside from the ethical issue. Oh, a- absolutely. And and in that uh, in that space, I think it's I think it's important to realize that right now, today, as you and I as you and I talk, I'm sure you've seen the movie, the documentary, uh, Food Inc. And uh, that one, for example, the the family that went to Burger King and got that meal for their son and said they couldn't afford they couldn't afford uh, uh, vegetables at the supermarket. That that fast food meal, you know, with the big uh, soda and the French fries and the burger and all, that fast food meal cost more than two whole pounds of our grass-finished ground beef right now. And there's more nutrition in half a pound of our ground beef than that whole fast food meal. And so that's the kind of thing, I think, as, as Jamie Oliver poked around these edges, um, you, you, you can change your whole, um, you know, your whole provenance, your whole, and your whole economic uh, situation if you change your provenance. Uh, one of the things that we know right now, for example, is that our pasture GMO-free uh, world-class um, chicken is if you if you get a whole chicken, it's cheaper than a Tyson breast down at Walmart per pound. Per pound, it's cheaper per pound than a Tyson breast at Walmart. And so, if you get a whole chicken from us, you know you're going to have three or four meals, eat the whole thing with leftovers. You're going to have broth. You're going to have you know all this 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 stuff. You get a a, a boneless skinless breast down at Walmart from Tyson. And, um, and, and it might be convenient, but you're not actually going to have nutrition. You're not going to actually have value, full, uh, full value from that, uh, boneless, skinless breast. So, you know, whenever somebody starts talking about price, I start looking at, well, what are you currently spending your money on? And pretty quickly, you know, 90% of the people, you can find some very glaring um, uh, luxuries, unnecessary luxuries that are eating up the food budget that could much, much more strategically be spent on, um, you know, on unprocessed whole foods and eating nose to tail. Absolutely. Well, it seems like the word, the word false economy applies to so many areas. It applies to you know, my peers in the tactical professions that are being worked into the ground, you know, and they're saving money, quote unquote, on their staffing, but then they're paying way more when they, you know, retire out or get hurt or all these other, you know, expenses on the back end. Um, but another false economy, which I really want to explore with you, um, is the effect of factory farming. Now, obviously, any decent human being, just the ethical side would be enough to make you not want to see that and, and anywhere on, on planet Earth. But aside from that, you know, growing up in England, we had BSE. We discovered that they were feeding ground up cows to cows in, in the farms. Um, tell me about the farming practices and, and the, 
the breeding ground that they create not only for disease in the animals themselves, but also, you know, maybe a precursor to some of these pandemics that we've seen before? Well, certainly. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to connect the dots that we are what we eat, we are, and we are what we eat eats. And so if our, if our animals are raised in confinement, and fecal, in fecal particulate, in other words, the, the air is dusty with their manure, they're, 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 they live in their own manure at all times and breathe it in as well. So it would be like, you know, you living in your toilet, um, and they eat there, they sleep there, they do everything there, uh, and they're sedentary, they're confined, they can't exercise, they don't get uh, sunshine, they, um, and they don't get fresh air, they don't get exercise, and, and their diet is completely calorie-driven for fast growth, um, as opposed to completely well-rounded uh, nutrients, so they grow extra fast. Uh, um, if you create that kind of of habitat, it is it is intuitive, even if it's not empirically proven right now. But it certainly is intuitive that if that's what we're eating, that's what we're going to look like. We're going to look like what we eat, and so if if the animals are high stressed calorie-driven, um, you know, fat-oriented, uh, non-exercise, then we're going to start looking that same way. Uh, in other words, uh, flabby, flabby pork makes flabby people. <laughs> so, uh, so what's, what's, what's not surprising is that people begin to look like what they eat and that includes the simplicity on our farms you know we we don't have diversified farms we have extremely simplistic ones and nature is not simplistic nature is highly complex it's very relational and it's interrelational uh synergistic and symbiotic and our farms are essentially you know single species single plant single animal uh we don't even mix plants and animals and and so that that simplicity, and in, in fact, we even dump chemical fertilizer on the soil, as opposed to the to to leveraging the complexity of the actinomycetes, mycelium, you know, uh, uh, all the the soil microbial life that has more beings in a double handful than there are people on the face of the earth. That's how many beings are in a handful of healthy soil. So, so instead of leveraging that, we simplistically throw on chemical nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, and then we wonder why our plants have, you know, fungus and disease and, and, and need, uh, uh, you know, prop-ups of fumigants and chemicals and, and everything else. And so as we develop these crutches, as we develop these, these uh, pharmaceutical and chemical crutches to take our plants and animals forward, in a time of, of simplistic uh, soil and animal feeding, it's na- it's natural that we're going to start um, what's the word uh, uh, crutching. We're going to start uh, seeing the same thing in our population. In fact, in 1950, when he wrote an agricultural testament, uh, Sir Albert Howard, who was kind of the godfather of 
of modern sustainable agriculture. He developed the scientific formula for aerobic composting uh, in his in his um, absolute you know uh, iconic book, An Agricultural Testament, 1950. Or 50, um, or, uh, no, no, I'm sorry. Um, I'm a decade off. It was came out in about 1943, so right in the middle of World War II. Um, he had this statement. He said, "He said it is the temptation of every society to turn what nature has spent centuries building into cash." The other thing he said was that when we use artificials—that's what he called chemical fertilizers. Artificial manures, he called them artificial manures. Artificial manures on the soil, it makes artificial soil, which grows artificial plants, which grows artificial people, who can only be kept alive with artificials. He nailed Boy, if it. That wasn't, if that wasn't prophetically prescient, I don't know what is. Yeah, no, I mean, that was absolutely spot on, and it's terrifying, and that, that's that's the behind-the-curtain um you know, vision that I've been able to get in the last 15 years. And it's a tragic, it's a tragic realization. But, you know, I, I don't want to demonize the, the medical industry because they do so many good things. But using pharmaceuticals for chronic disease management is one of the biggest tragedies in human health, where it should be fitness and nutrition, reversing and mitigating disease. Yes. Uh, absolutely, and yeah, uh, uh, listen, you know, I'm very thankful that we have some pretty sophisticated um, medical options in our arsenal today. Absolutely, I'm, I'm glad that we have antibiotics. The, the, the problem is, though, that, you know, we then, we then created a factory farming system that required antibiotics for the animals to stay alive. A lot of people don't realize that the lion's share of antibiotics in the United States actually don't go through people. They go through animals, and we eat them for dinner. And so, uh, you know, we, we did a, a messaging campaign one time. Who's been drugging, who's been drugging your dinner? Um, and, and, you know, um, so, so, you know, we take this something that's really a, a blessing, that, that's really a blessing, and we overuse it and abuse it and, and, uh, turn it into a liability, you know, um, with our own, uh, greed and short-sighted view. And so, you know, so here we are. So what we need to be doing, is um, yeah, is is collectively working on and dedicating ourselves to uh, um, to a higher immunological function, and and uh, have the hospitals there when we need them. But uh, if they could be limited to accidents and you know uh, injury things like that, uh, it would fundamentally change. It would fundamentally change our uh, our economy and our overall cultural wellness. Yeah, absolutely. Well, going back to the the cause as well, just for a moment. So, when you look back, you know, we, there's some certain diseases that that have made a huge impact in in history. There's the Black Death. There's you know cholera, both of which they realized were actually you know human waste into you know a, a water supply or even just just in the streets like uh, old age London. And then you look at the Spanish flu, which very coincidentally happened right after World War One, where, you know, thousands of men lay dying and rotting in trenches in, in Europe. Um, and then now we look at, excuse me, at um, the uh, COVID and we're told about the bats in the wet markets. So, again, people kind of, you know, wringing their hands and, and crying to, to the heavens, like, why, why is this happening? 
what element of of farming practices and raising animals do you think is contributing to some of these horrendous viruses that we're seeing that are then killing a lot of our people? Well, whenever you whenever you concentrate an inordinate number of animals in a unsanitary place. So we've got we've got concentration, we've got uh, so we've got we've got density, we've got mass, you know, scale, size, and we have uh, horrendous unsanitary conditions, and and in in many cases, um, uh, proximate. Take those three things. You know, uh, concentration, scale, and lack of hygiene, and then mix animals that would never otherwise even be close to each other, uh, otherwise, and certainly not at those kind of concentrations and unsanitary conditions. When you start pushing, when you start pushing that um, that envelope, it's naturally going to push you into strange mutations. It's going to push you into new pathogenicities and toxicities that we've that humankind has not seen before. The the ability of humans today, with cheap energy, transportation, and and, and you know distribution capabilities, with you know trains and trucks and and all that, the our our newfound ability to concentrate at scale um, is unprecedented. You know, when there, when just even uh, a century and a half ago, when it was still all draft power, oxen, horses, mules, draft power, you simply could not concentrate at scale what we were able to do today because you couldn't move enough feedstock in, you couldn't move the the manure out, and um, and, and so the the you you were limited logistically with the ability to transport material. Today, we don't have that limitation. So all around the world, we can overrun, we can overrun the ecological, uh, what, uh, the, the ecological nest, if you will, a, a proper um, uh, hygienic ecolog- ecological nest. We can overrun that willy-nilly. And, and in fact, we do. And when we do that, we create all sorts of problems. I mean, uh, goodness, North Carolina here in the U.S., North Carolina, if it weren't for a, a hurricane every two years to come in and flush all the, the pig lagoons in North Carolina, North Carolina today would be covered up in, in uh, pig manure. But, uh, you know, I, I call it the biannual flush. And here comes the big hurricane, dumps, you know, 15 inches of rain, and you get all this flooding and flushing, and everything gets, you know, flushed out to sea. You have some massive fish kills as part of the collateral damage, and, you know, and we're good to go for another cycle. And, um, and, and so this is what happens, uh, with today's ability to, to, to concentrate like, like, like we've never been able to do before. Have humans have humans damaged our environment in the past? Absolutely. For throughout history, we've damaged our past. But we've been lim- we've been we've been limited by simple you know, logistics and transportation. 
you know, you, you, you can't destroy but so much acreage when you're walking with a sharp stick behind a, you know, behind an ox. Uh, a person can only touch so much land. But if you're driving a, a, a 600 horsepower, eight wheel drive articulated, uh, tractor pulling up, uh, a 15 bottom plow, you can, you know, you can touch a lot of land in a hurry. And that, that's, that's the difference. The, the scale of our ability, the scale of our ability to exercise our, um, our dominance and control on our womb, on the nest, is simply unprecedented today. And that's one reason why we're seeing, uh, a proliferation of this, of this, uh, lexicon. Yeah. I want to get to your your new book. I've just got one more area because you you kind of really opened that door for a second. Um, we always hear about the rainforests being destroyed and that being related to to raising cattle. What's the truth behind that? And again, how how can local farming even combat the the environmental element? Well, uh, yes, a lot of it is being destroyed. Um, I, I'll just say. That the problem is in domestic livestock, and I'm, and certainly, you know, cattle are, are the king of that. Um, in domestic livestock worldwide, we are not mimicking the natural choreography of, of, of herbivorous herds throughout the planet. And, uh, when you study the way these large herds have worked in the past, and by the way, develop the deepest soils on the planet. Uh, they have they have moved from place to place. They move regarding the rainy season. Uh, predators push them. Flies push them. Uh, their own bellies push them to new ground. And so there's there's a constant undulation uh, uh, movement pattern across the prairies, across the Serengeti, uh, you know, across the the tundra. Uh, that's the way nature moves. But with domestic livestock, we've moved into a sedentary situation where we fence and we leave the animals in one place, which then means they overgraze. There's not a veg, a, a forage rest period, which means the forage doesn't, doesn't ever, isn't ever able to get into its fast, uh, its fast kind of juvenile growth curve, which means it's stunted and, um, and then we don't get the solar conversion into biomass that can decompose. So on our farm, we move the cows every day to a new paddock, which means that, you know, uh, each paddock can rest before they come back. Now the cows might be on a given paddock, oh, you know, four to six times in a season, but those are only four to six days in a given spot throughout the season. And so we use high-tech electric fencing, to be able to give us a steering wheel, a brake, and an accelerator on that four-legged pruning, uh, that four-legged pruner, to be able to move across the landscape with the with the animals at the same precision level as a zero-turn mower on a golf course. That's never been done. That's never been possible in human history. Uh, so, what this does is allow us to mimic. So, this is biomimicry of the movement of the animals across the landscape. And all we're trying to do is, on a domestic scale, mimic what we see nature doing on a, on a wild scale. And if everyone did that, 
the production increase would be unbelievable. Uh, in Augusta County, where we live, the average cow days per acre, a cow day is what one cow will eat in a day. So we took all the food that you eat today and put it on your plate. That'd be one person day of food. So, um, so what one cow will eat in a day is, is one cow day. So in Augusta County, where we live, the average is 80 cow days per acre. So an acre will support 80 cows for one day a year or eight or, or one cow for 80 days a year. Um, the average is 80 and we average 400. So, uh, uh, we we don't we don't have a resource problem we don't have a cow problem we don't have a population problem we don't have a food problem what we have is a management problem and if we could get the management right then everything else would fall into place yeah yeah and i remember i can't remember if it was in um fooding that they featured you or if it was forks over knives but you know where they're showing that and and your you know your cows are followed by the pigs and the pigs are followed by the chickens and even the the length of the grass that your cows are eating this very long mature grass versus the very short one that you normally see in pastures you could just i mean it just made perfect sense like you're sending several species through each one is you know laying their their compost down and so therefore nourishing the actual land and when they keep going back it builds and builds and builds so just from a complete non-farming common sense point of view it makes perfect sense sure sure that's right uh, but but you see you don't feel threatened or have to de-learn anything <laughs> <laughs> that's true well that is a great segue then to the book so i think hopefully there will be some lessons learned from this. My biggest fear of this whole pandemic is that people go back to doing exactly the same thing they did before, which would be the real tragedy because even the deaths won't be honored by, you know, some sort of learning. But your, your new book, Beyond Labels, I think is a great opportunity for people to understand what's in some of the, the foods that are sitting on the shelves at the moment. So tell me about why you wrote that and then, you know, how people can find it. Sure. Well, so um, so I hooked up with this um, Ph.D. biochemist, Sina McCullough, uh, who had her own brush with death. She was actually planning her funeral as a 30-whatever, 32-year-old, um, and, and had grown, had all sorts of um, uh, debilitating illnesses and, you know, immunodeficiency. Um, by eating the standard American diet. We call that SAD, standard American diet. And um, so she, you know, she had her uh, epiphany one day when she said, okay, I've, I've got to, I can't blame the doctor. I can't blame the food. I can't blame, you know, I've got to, I've got, I've got to do this myself. And, um, and so she started using her PhD biochemistry uh, background to research food and started to change her diet, change her life, and today she's a, a vibrant, whatever, 38, 39-year-old, uh, I call her an energizer bunny. We did a conference together a couple of years ago, met for the first time. We, uh, I was, shoot, the two of us were the two speakers. I was completely taken and enamored by what she said. And uh, she enjoyed what I said, and she just came up to me at the end and said, let's do a book together. And to my knowledge, a book pairing a farmer with a Ph.D. biochemist uh, has never been done before, and maintaining our own dialogue. So the book, 
So although we've co-authored it, we've maintained our separate personas throughout the book, so it reads like a like a play, like a dialogue, like you're sitting in an audience and you're watching two people just um, uh, talk back and forth. In fact, in fact, numerous people who have now reviewed it and read it thought that we actually sat down and had a conversation and then transcribed it for the book. That's not the way we wrote it. We we actually did a lot of emails back and forth, and uh, and as we kind of got into the rhythm, we were able to to play on each other. We learned more about each other, and we're able to play on it. So the whole idea of the book is a continuum to take you from wherever you are. If you're right now, if you're eating uh, most of your food from the gas station, um, and you want to go to a better place, this this does not talk down, judge, or speak with prejudice against what you're doing. It simply is to take you by the hand, coach you, and 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 and, and challenge, yes, and encourage you to move to another level. We have, so the chapters are all titled Practical Bites. There's, I don't know what, uh, 60 Practical Bites. And they're all written in things that, you know, something that you can do today. And you just add, you just, um, you know, add these at your, at your pace. If it takes, if it takes two months, fine. If it takes three years, fine. Ten years, fine. That's fine. And you may never get to the end. I mean, Cena and I both realize neither of us actually does all of the whatever, the, the paradise things that we, that we get to right at the end of the book. But we went ahead and put, and put in, uh, kind of our, uh, you know, our, our, our paradise, uh, thinking just so that all of us, including us, could be pushed and encouraged to move to a better place in our, in our, uh, in our lives. And so the, the book is full of, uh, how to build immune system. How to save time in the kitchen, uh, how to source, how to find, how to cut through the the whole thing beyond labels. Uh, you know, if you're dependent on labels for food buying, you're probably pretty disconnected from your food. And so we punch through some of the clever speak and the way the FDA allows things to be labeled, like generally accepted as safe (GRAS). Uh, that's a big sleeping giant in the in the labeling industry. And uh, we, we, we pull that aside and lead you um, non-prejudicially through a, a continuum to a, a place of, uh, of understanding so you can make better decisions on your own food providence. That, that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to get you to a better, a, a better place, a better decision-making place uh, so that you can feel confident and comfortable with your own decisions and you're not just dependent on on um, phraseology and clever labels that almost never uh speak honestly about what's actually what's actually uh contained. Yeah. No, I think that's so important and you hit on a very good point about, you know, just starting today. I think you know people see some people at the moment, you know, wearing a mask in their own car and people kind of like ridicule them but it, people got to understand the environment they're in if you get your information for example from fox news and cnn you're not you're going to have a very skewed perspective i was raised with now realizing all the wrong nutritional advice all the wrong you know weight training advice too you know everything was around the bodybuilding machines and i became a fireman that didn't serve me well either but forgiving yourself where you are today saying all right you got me you know advertising people or you know whatever whatever industry kind of led you that way 
Um, but today is when you start educating. And the more education the ha- you have, the more power you're going to realize you have over your own health, over you know everything around you. And then if that happens in all the households down the street and all the towns in, in the county and then exponentially to the country, we're literally going to change the way you know, our country's health looks within 10 years. Yes, yes. And and in true kind of, uh, you know, libertarian fashion, this book does not ask for additional government oversight. It doesn't ask for subsidies. It doesn't ask for agencies, tax incentives, or anything else. It's all about uh, us individually. Here's what we can do right now today and 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 walk steadily and, you know, and make progress into a different um, uh, health future for ourselves. That's what we're after. We're, we're after a time when you wake up in the morning and you're not thinking about health issues because you're vibrant, you're, you're full of life, and you wake up in the morning uh, ready to get at it, and, 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 and you're not dwelling on your own uh, whatever health limitations. That's, that's a place of optimum health. Absolutely. And I agree with you 100%. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the environment should be there for people to thrive. But the way we start that clearly having seen, you know, the, the last several decades, whether it's our food, whether it's drug policy, whatever it is, you know, when you when you look back and realize that that system's failed, then you have to be part of the problem. I mean, excuse me, part of the solution, not part of the problem. Yes, yes. All right. Well, then some closing questions I didn't get to ask you last time because I kind of added them later on in the podcast. Um, we talked about your book. Obviously, you've got several others as well, and we're going to get to where they can find that in a moment. Um, are there any books that other people have written that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed or something completely different. Well, there's a new one just out that I'm, that I'm pushing when I have a chance uh, called Sacred Cow. It's just being launched at literally this week by uh, Rob Wolf, the founder of Paleo, and uh, his, it's a co-authored book also. Diana Rogers, who's a, who's a dietitian, uh, podcaster of the podcast Sustainable Dish, and uh, Sacred Cow, and, and they, they, uh, they take on the four basic uh, uh, arguments against, you know, eating meat, especially beef, and, um, and so it's a great companion now to this is the kind of book that I use as a companion and uh, and get you know hardcore information out of uh, you know nutrient analysis and things to um, you know to help people eat a more well to help people realize that um, veganism is not the solution to health issues and and um, we we have many customers we you know we have thousands of customers and and uh, we deal routinely with folks who went through the vegan fad and their health suffered and deteriorated and and uh, there there are a few people very few who actually thrive on an almost you know um, meatless diet but they're not very many most people over time will deteriorate in their in their health and so um, so sacred cow has been a been a great uh, a great friend here I'm glad, I'm glad i'm glad they've written it yeah well, i'm gonna have to reach out to to a mutual friend of rob's because we've been trying to get him on for a little while but if he's got a new book that's a good time um he actually was at emt yeah. back in the day as well so 
there yeah, is that parallel. That's parent. right. That's yeah. right. Uh-huh. So, but then yeah. it's, it's interesting, just touching on the vegan thing for a moment. Um, I went plant-based for about six months. I really noticed some great benefits, but then towards that, you know, I think what they call the vegan honeymoon, you know, did did notice a kind of decline in my what seeming seemed like energy. So kind of transitioned to putting some meat on. But I've had um, James Wilkes that did the, the game changers on. I've had, you know, the, the whole gamut of of dietary philosophers, if you like. And the to me, the middle ground is is the clean vegetables and then, you know, and or the clean meat. So it's funny with some conversations, these two sides like, you know, want to murder each other. But, you know, the lesson learned is, like you said, there are people that do thrive on, on veganism and good for them. And there are seemingly people that thrive on, on carnivore diet, which I, I find very intriguing as well. But the majority of us with, with clean, holistically raised meat and clean vegetables and fruit, are gonna are gonna thrive, and I think that's the the conversation that gets missed on the two extremes, slinging arrows at each other. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And and part of the you know part of the Beyond Labels book that Tina and I wrote were were ways to you know listen to your body to to listen. I mean, we we don't trust ourselves anymore. We've been so expertized in our culture, uh, you know, and, and kind of uh, almost. Almost, uh, what's the word? We, you, you can't fix your refrigerator. You can't fix your television. You can't fix your car. Um, and we've kind of been unmoored from our ability to take care of ourselves. And so you, you know, so you ask the expert. And um, you know, investing is too hard, so you have an investment advisor. And and and, <laughs> and so so we we assume we assume that. I can't know anything. You know, what do I know? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a dietitian. And, and the fact is that, uh, I mean, we, we live in our skin. You know, we live with ourselves. We see what our poop looks like. We, we feel <laughs> what the urine looks like. You know, we, we actually live in this. And so, um, so making our daily observations, we know the aches and the pains and, and, and whether we have a bloated feeling or whether our, are, you know, uh, whether we feel, uh, bouncy or lethargic. And, um, and so experiment, you know, that's the whole point is, is, is be willing to step out there and, and experiment some. Uh, but don't join a cult. Don't jump off on a fad. Do some experiments. Keep some mental notes. And, um, and, and you'll, you'll gradually find you're exactly right. Some people thrive on, on, a, a meatless uh, thing, not very many. Uh, and you're right. I, I'm completely intrigued by the whole, you know, carnivore thing. Um, you know, as a livestock farmer, that really intrigues me. But uh, yeah, and 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 then some people, you know, they they get completely off of grains. Uh, but then again, you go to you know a place that does old heritage Egyptian type grains and heavy breads in those areas, and, and it's a whole different a whole different context and a different situation than for example american uh short short stem grains uh that's another discussion but anyway um listen to yourself wherever you are listen to yourself and um and you'll be surprised what you might learn i couldn't agree more all right well then another question is there a, a movie or documentary that you love uh movie or documentary um you know i i don't watch I don't watch very many documentaries. Um, I, I guess one of the 
you know, one of my favorites is still um, Fresh. And uh, it came out the same year that Food, Inc. came out. But Fresh uh, is as positive as Food, Inc. is shockingly negative. And uh, I mean, I don't like Food, Inc. Uh, it was a shocker. But uh, the documentary Fresh um, was had a much more positive message. And, and you, you left... You left that one saying, yes, you know, yes, we can do this. It was, it was very empowering and encouraging. Uh, just one word, fresh, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good one. Brilliant. And I saw on the, on the website, I, I don't know how I missed this, but Polyface has a documentary. Is that right? Uh, we didn't do it. It was done by a couple from Australia. Yes, it's called Polyfaces, and um, it was done by an Australian couple. And, um, yes, that's, a, that's if you want to see more you know, of the farm here and, and what we do in our life. Uh, that's a, that's a good one. Brilliant. All right. Um, is the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, medical community and military of the world? The first responder community. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just blank right now. Uh, you have to, I have to, I have to pass on that. That, that was kind of a, <laughs> no problem. It's a new one. But... I wasn't quite wasn't quite prepared for that one. I apologize. Yeah. Well, actually, thinking about it, your your co-author of Carbon, uh, excuse me, of uh, Beyond Labels might actually be a, a good guess as well. Someone who literally oh, yeah. drag themselves oh, out. Yeah. Why am I Why am I uh, a silly on that? Yes, absolutely. She would be. She would be fantastic. Uh, Cena McCullough does. She's a very vibrant interview, and uh, and she would be able to speak to that extremely well yes brilliant all right so then one more question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online what do you do to decompress decompress uh well my you know my recreation is reading uh you know just a good a good book whether it's fiction or not i don't read a lot of fiction mainly nonfiction. but uh to decompress just you know um uh reading something just enjoying what somebody else's thoughts um Instead of having to answer questions and make up my own, uh, is is a way I decompress. Brilliant. Well, actually, I just two days ago I sent a book I've just written, my very first book, to an editor, and I actually quote you in there. The I think it's you. You think food is expensive? Have you pri- priced cancer lately? I think that was the quote yeah. I used. <laughs> but uh-huh. uh, but I want to send you a copy of that. So I will. Great. I will, when Thank it's, you. When it's I'll finally look- out. Yes, I look forward to that. Yes, I read. I read voraciously. Fantastic. Well, let's hope this will probably be a little different than <laughs> than than what you've read. It's uh, it's kind of like behind the curtain of what we see, so a different perspective. Um, all right. So, in the very last question: If people want to reach out to you, if they want to buy the books, if they want to visit the farm and actually buy some of your food, how do they find you online? So the website is Polyface Farms. P O L Y F A C E. In fact. If you Google, it, once you get to about P-O-L-Y, it'll, the rest of it will pop up, uh, Polyface Farms. And we have a very uh, active website, um, gift shop. You can buy food. You can buy uh, T-shirts that say things like, everything I want to do is illegal. And, uh, uh, and you can see where I'm, you know, where, where I am uh, speaking, get linked up to news articles, things like that, but, and see pictures of the farm. Um, all those kind of things. So, yeah, the website is polyfacefarms.com, um, and um, love to have you uh, check it out. And uh, there's a lot of it, there's a lot of material information there. And we do, yeah, we do ship nationwide. 
So uh, anybody that wants to try something, uh, just order it right there online, and we ship. You know, we ship every week, and and uh, be glad to serve you. Excellent. Well, again, Joel, I want to say thank you so much. Four years ago, I said I'm going to come up and visit soon. I still haven't yet and haven't made it up to the Northeast at all. But it's absolutely it was actually my plan this this summer before before this craziness yeah. happened. But I yeah. hopefully I'll maybe even get to give you the book face to face. But um, I appreciate you taking the time once again. And, and your perspective is invaluable anytime, but especially now. So I hope people have gleaned, you know, the preventative element of the, this whole situation we've been through. Yes. Thank you very much for having me on. I look forward to the next time and do please uh, come and visit when you can. Love to have you.